Existential, a podcast aimed at reminding you that it's okay to be human. We listen to human stories and human experiences, and we wrestle with issues of justice, faith, and culture. I'm your host, Corey Leak. Thanks for listening. Folks, today on um, Existential, I have my friend Tony Caldwell, who is a licensed mental health specialist. He hosts a podcast called Voices of Wisdom. He's a husband, a father, and a racial justice advocate. And uh, we've, we've connected via some mutual friends, Andre Henry, um, I think uh, Shane Claiborne, I think both of them have actually been on your podcast, which is a small world. Um, but thanks for being on the show, Tony. Absolutely. It's great to be with you. Yeah, man. So how are you doing? We're coming off the holiday week, you know, and it's, it's, it's uh, Thanksgiving was last week. Let me ask you this question. This is, I'm actually, I was curious about this this morning when I opened my refrigerator and I'm still nibbling on Thanksgiving ham. I don't know how long white people eat Thanksgiving. Like in my house, we ate Thanksgiving leftovers for at least, like when I was a kid, for at least a week and a half, two weeks, and then we ate turkey soup for another, like you know, month. So, like, how long, <laughs> how long do leftovers last in white people's house? I mean, I guess you can't speak for all of them, but how long does it last in, in your house? Yeah. So uh, for me personally, I will, I will eat turkey indefinitely, which is probably not a good idea. Uh, ham, though, I get weird about ham, you know, after a day or so when it's, it starts looking weird or, sort of, <laughs> I don't know, greasy. Uh, it freaks me out, you know. Gotcha. Yeah, so uh, so I don't, I eat leftover ham maybe two days. Oh, man. I, you know, I, and I, what I love about ham, though, is, you know, I, I eat leftover ham warm or cold, you know. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'm too lazy to warm it up, so I just go to the refrigerator and you know, grab a couple pieces of cold ham, and that's what I have for breakfast this morning, actually. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, Tony, tell us, tell the audience uh, about you, your practice, uh, about your work, um, and just just help people get acquainted with who you are. Yeah. So I've been in mental health uh, as a therapist for about twenty years, and uh, I started out working primarily with children for about that first decade. Uh, the past ten years. I've been doing training in psychoanalysis, which really lends itself mostly to working with adults and doing a lot of deep work around trauma and things like that. So uh, as I did my own work in that area, I became more and more interested in just working with adults and doing that type of work. And uh, so I've been doing that. I've also worked a lot in the past year or so with uh, people leaving religious trauma and mm. a lot of a lot of white people living, leaving uh, evangelicalism and uh you know through some mutuals like uh jonathan martin and some different people you know kind of think people found me through him and some other people um but uh, also i went out to evolving faith last year and was a mental health consultant there and i know it just became this thing that, that kind of happened and it's it's been really healing for me because my family has you know we've walked that journey of deconstruction and now to be able to walk alongside other people Going through that has has been really beautiful. Mm. That's amazing, bro. Like the to to be in a space where people are coming to you with trauma from religion, right? And you actually have the tools to be able to help walk them through it. That's that's so great. Now, now what what have you found has been sort of a common thread amongst people who are coming out of evangelicalism. You mentioned a lot of white people even coming out of uh, evangelicalism. What's been this common thread that you've seen with the people you've been working with and helping? Lots of grief. Hmm. You know, the loss of relationships, the loss of family, loss of community, and really sort of this desert experience where, you know, there's there's not a new normal yet. Hmm. And... Um, and that that's really prominent also uh, a sense of identity um shift shifting you know in some way where um you know we tend to draw some some measure of our identity from who we spend time with and have shared experiences with create memories with and that sort of thing so when that changes there's a sense of like going back to those core identity questions we have around middle school you know like who am I, where do I belong, and who do I belong to, who are my people, 
Mm-hmm. You know, and so a lot of what I see is people that feel like they no longer are part of a people and they don't have a new people. Mm-hmm. You know, and and uh, one of the heartbreaking things about that, I see a lot of people, and I went through this too. Um, is a sense of, you know, longing to be adopted into a new group in some way, but wow. don't know who that group is, you know, so it's almost like looking for a surrogate family in some way. Uh, and sometimes that, you know, has people feeling pretty homesick. Like here, here's an example. I know several people who um, came out as gay and they weren't accepted in their evangelical community. So they, they found that they were embraced in the Episcopal church. Hmm. But they feel like a foreigner there, you know, culturally. It's a very different culture, uh, very different rituals. Um, for several people, I know it's it's different socioeconomically. You know, it's just different in a lot of ways. So there's the sense of sort of being embraced or sort of grafted into a community. They don't really feel a sense of belonging in because there's not a sense of the familiar. Hmm. Their worship styles are different. Music's different. So... Yeah, that, that sense of sort of being a person without a place, you know, it, yeah. it's really common. And, you know, my family and I have been through that. And, you know, I think part of the journey for us, I, I try not to superimpose this onto other people's experiences because everybody has their own path. But before us, I think we've kind of gotten to this place where we almost don't desire that anymore. I think it's mm-hmm. made us lean into god and one another in a new way to where um the community is is absolutely necessary but it's become less of an idol for us wow yeah dude that's hold on <laughs> um okay so because i'm listening to you talk about this and and we had our friend danny fitch on um a couple of different times one of the times that she was on she talked about um our natural gravitation towards tribe and our need for community and need for connection, which is, I don't think any, I don't know anyone who really disagrees with that, but what I'm hearing you offer some nuance to when you talk about making an idol out of community is that there is something else to uh, couple with that sort of need for tribe, right? Like, so what, talk more about that. Like, what do you, what do you mean when you say, you know, that we we wanted to not make an idol out of community. Yeah, so I think that's because for us personally, we had already made that mistake. Um, both of us, my wife and I, found ourselves sort of being the oddballs in the families that we were raised in, mm-hmm. and so um, and not really fitting into the dominant culture in a lot of ways. And when we found a church that embraced us, even though looking back, it was pretty conditional. And in some ways, I think we were not conscious of that. In some ways, I think we were honestly willing to sell ourselves a little bit to find some kind of acceptance. You know, we, you know there's a lot of loneliness there. Uh, but, you know, I think anytime you enter into a situation where uh, sameness is, or similarity is mistaken for sameness, there's always a bad breakup or at least a renegotiation. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I, th- I think coming from that place of loneliness, we made that community an idol in that we used it as a surrogate family. Mm. And when the sense of belonging ended there, when I, you know, when I took some pretty hard stances while pastoring in that community on uh, being open uh, to same-sex love and um really speaking to racial injustice and things like that. They were just sense of just not belonging there anymore, mm. you know? And uh, so I think that's painful no matter how you cut it, but the fact that we had, A, sold ourselves a little bit uh, in order to belong, and so got out of touch with some parts of our authentic selves, and then B, how we had made the community an idol and that we used it as a surrogate family, not just a community. Yeah. Which, again, I think that's all important and it's all valid, but I I think it's, we set ourselves up to have basically a triple wound instead of a wound in the ways that we related. Wow, bro. Now my head is like in so many different places and going in so many different directions with this whole idea 
of what is it that we're willing to exchange for our sense of community and belonging, right? Andre, our friend Andre uh, recently um, said that something something along the lines of, of you can't have unity with people who want to subjugate you, like speaking specifically about race, right? And, and I've talked a lot about you know, the sort of the mythical ideas of, of racial reconciliation that we see prevalent, especially in white evangelical churches where white folks want to dictate the terms by which, you know, people can be reconciled. And I have noticed that, you know, from talking to like, you know, pastors and people who attend church that even amongst the LBGTQ plus community, it seems that there are some from that community that will go to churches that do not affirm their their being, but they'll just continue to go. Black folks that continue to attend white evangelical churches, and, and despite the fact that those churches will not join the fight for you know racial equality and racial justice. And I look at that and I think, oh, like after hearing you talk, I'm like, oh, there there's a sense of community that they need. And perhaps they don't feel like they can find it if they leave the tribe they're already a part of and wander the desert. Yeah, yeah. I see that a lot. You know, I mean, I'm, I grew up in Mississippi, so um, it's starting to evolve a little bit around, you know, people being, people in the LGBTQ um, plus community being able to be open and be safe simultaneously to some degree and find community, but I've, man, I've, you know, I've been um, a provider for the campaign for Southern equality for a long time. And so I know a lot of really very rural, um, very isolated um, people who are trans and who like, you know, live down a gravel road 20 miles from the closest Walmart, you know, Mm. and are so incredibly isolated and, you know, I, I mean, I've, I've literally seen things like uh, the work the human rights campaigns do, and there'd be the difference between people dying and living, you know, mm-hmm. because there's just this sense of isolation and loneliness. And people are starting to find community and find groups and find support. And uh, and that's that's a beautiful thing. But, but to kind of speak to what you were saying, I know so many gay people in Mississippi that go to churches that don't affirm them, even though there are churches available who would affirm them. And uh, for some of them that I know personally, I think they're doing something similar to what my family and I were doing, in, that they're looking towards a group that feels familiar, looking for a corrective experience. It's almost like the person who, who goes from abuser to abuser. This time they'll get better. This time they'll choose me. This time they'll stop drinking. This time, this time, you know, looking for that corrective, that cathartic feeling of, Oh, okay. It finally worked. I finally was accepted by this type of person, or um, you know, kind of to resolve that original wound, if you will. You know, I I heard Nadia Bowles Weber speak to this in some way, where she talked about how when a lot of normal-looking people came to her weird church, <laughs> she was upset because she wanted to keep it weird. But then some of the, you know, like one of the young gay men in her uh, congregation said, I love the fact that people that look like my parents actually accept me and embrace me mm. in this setting, you know? Um, but, but the thing that I've seen is almost the exact opposite of that, where people come into the familiar setting and they're smiled at and talked to and their hands are, you know, shaken and they're, um, you know, treated so almost like, you know, the red carpet's rolled out, but let them try to go teach Sunday school or ask the pastor to marry them and, right. and things get real really quick. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 All of those things get weird, but not that offering bucket, you know, that, you know, I've never heard of any religious institution, um, you know, not allowing or prohibiting LBGTQ plus folks from putting money in that bucket, but their mm-hmm. time, but they can't offer their time. And they're not saying it's fully human. <clears throat> Excuse me. So yeah, man, I, I I think it's I think that's a fascinating conversation, and I think it's it's really interesting to me to think about you know the dynamics of community and belonging, and when you talk about isolation and how it really is a killer, right? So, it, it what what have you found is sort of this in between from like idolizing community 
and you know allowing yourself to drift into isolation yeah i think that's different for everyone all i know is my experience and for me um it pushed it pushed my family and i into um a god first orientation to the world uh that's not like you know i heard language like that in the community we were from put god first and it was in this way that just didn't translate to me but i think when god's all you have left you mm-hmm. bond in a way that you know it's sort of like our fam our unit uh, our youngest son and, and my wife and i and our isolation bonded in ways that we just didn't before mm. the desert experience. And I think so, I guess to borrow language from like panentheism, I would say like we, I feel like we're inside of God mm. in a certain way. Like I literally never feel separate from God ever anymore. And it's because my way of relating to and conceptualizing God had to change. And so I don't see God as this, out there figure that um, sort of intervenes here and there. Uh, I just see God in it all. Like a long time ago, my prayers stopped being, uh, God, take this away, but God be with me. And then it just shifted into God, I already know you're with me. Just help me to stay aware of that. Mm. You know, so I see God in the good, the bad, the ugly. It's just like, it's just comprehensive, you know, universe one, you know, it's all, it's all here together. And, uh, so yeah, my ways of thinking about death and pain and emotional struggle and all that just really changed when I, when I saw it as all happening inside of God instead of it happening separate from God and God selectively intervening here and there. Mm. And so, yeah, that's, that's the thing that's transformed um, for us. And, uh, you know, we still haven't found our new normal as far as with God external community because we 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 moved when things got really crazy for our family because of some activism i was doing in mississippi uh we moved about a year and a half ago to nashville and uh you know as soon as we started forming community COVID hit so we've been isolated <laughs> still in wow. some ways yeah 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 uh, yeah so uh but i want to get i want to get back into something you just said yeah. but before we do that i'm going to take a commercial break so you can talk about um, the best places to get hot chicken in Nashville. Okay. You know, I, I've been to, um, what's the place downtown that's got the hot chicken It's supposed to be, it's like the touristy place. Uh, so there's, there's uh, Prince's hot chicken. And then okay. there's, gosh, what's the other place called? Oh, I'm so mad that I can't remember it. Anyway, do you eat hot chicken? I don't. Um, <laughs> Tony, you don't, don't eat ham. You don't well, eat hot chicken. Look, I'm a you know, you're advocating for black people. You don't even eat our food. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'm trying not to say this uh, while we're recording. Uh, Hattie B's is the place I think you're. you're That's the name of the place, Hattie B's. Yeah, but but you're forcing me into saying it. Um, man, you know I, I grew up eating like that. I eat as southern as anybody, but uh, but man, my intestines can't handle it anymore. <laughs> As we set out in the, as we say out in the country, you know, it it burns the hoop coming out. So <laughs> I just can't do it anymore. I hear you, man. I probably shouldn't yeah. either, because you know I, I start to feel more and more like heartburn and all this stuff. Can barely sleep, you know. But sometimes I just go, "Is it going to be worth one night of sleep for this hot chicken?" And normally, when I'm in Nashville, the answer is yes. But dude, you just talked about swimming in a sea of God, which I am, uh, I'm, re- I'm currently reading a book called Everything is Spiritual. And I love this notion that none of it is separate from God, right? The good, the bad, someone's birthday, someone's funeral, God is in all of it, right? And could you just talk a little bit more about how knowing that or accepting that living into that has given you a sense of peace despite all of the like, you know, battles you've had to fight, which we'll get into in just a moment. Yeah. 
uh, pain is still pain, but suffering is different. So my storyline around my pain is different now. And uh, um, I wouldn't say, you know, I don't have um, this like miraculous transformation of personality. I still have my, my hangups, um, my insecurities, my triggers, um, things that anger me, wake up in a bad mood, you know, all of that. Um, I just, I just experienced that all is happening in the context of a larger wholeness that can kind of, that can hold mm. all of that fragmentation, you know, and let it fall apart and come back together. Um, that, you know, even, uh, even with like grief or despair or something, if that arises, um, yeah, I just feel like it's this large container that I can fall apart and come back together inside of without losing any pieces. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, there's a, there's a section in, in it's Rob Bell's book, um, uh, everything is spiritual. There's a section in the book where Rob talks about parts. Like he does this whole deep dive into, um, um, uh, physics and particles and atoms and 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 he talks about life in that way that it's a part right that it's all a part of the whole so then again as you're saying that the the pain the suffering part of the whole which includes joy and celebration and family and friends includes adversaries and enemies and you know what i'm saying like that's 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 all a part of the whole and as that you're describing as this giant container of God, you know, and you know, actually this morning was sort of thinking about as my understanding of God changes from thinking about God as sitting on a throne somewhere out there in the distance without really also considering the whole notion of God being everywhere. It's like, okay, you know, now my concept of God is, is really, to be honest, it's kind of fragmented. It's like, I'm trying to think, okay, what, like how, what's the handle? And I think the point is that there really isn't a handle. If there was a handle, I don't think it'd be God. It'd be some sort of idol that we made, whether that be community or a statue or money or, you know, or supremacy. You know, I think all of those things become our like ways of having a handle to hold on to God and continue to craft God into our image. What you're describing and what I love about what you're describing is that it puts God, I shouldn't even say puts God, it allows God or it allows us to see God as God actually is, which is mysterious and big and sometimes very hard to understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, certainty is probably the biggest idol in Christianity. 100%. And, um, you know, I just, I just couldn't hold on to certainty knowing that it was just an illusion. And so I think trying to find a way to relax while being in a constant trust fall, mm-hmm. it's really, it's, I think that's the work for all of us. I mean, that's that, I think that's what faith is, right? It's, mm-hmm. uh, there, there's no certainty in faith. That's why we call it faith. Um, yeah. like an, an image that kind of goes along with that is I, I've been going to, uh, these flotation tanks. I don't know if you've ever seen those or heard of those. Ones, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I haven't um, been. It's, my therapist recommend. I wonder if that, is that a thing? Is there like a convention and all the therapists went to and they said, "Hey, these tanks are really good for mental health." Because my therapist definitely recommended that like a year ago. So yeah, I, I'm not sure, but I, um, I've personally felt really drawn to okay. doing that because I know I know I hold stress and tension and trauma physically Mm. in my physical being. And, uh, I didn't have proximity to those, but since we moved here, I do. And, uh, I've been going and it's, it is that trust fall feeling. It's the, you know, people with anxiety have trouble in those tanks because it's dark and you're alone and extremely vulnerable and exposed. And, but, um, but it's impossible to sink in that water. It's, it's so bizarre how you almost feel like you're on top of the water more than in it. You know, it's, I don't know exactly how that works, but it's, it's pretty amazing. But, um, trying to physically relax takes me about, um, 50 minutes of the hour. 
floating. Because you find where, where, you know, it's not just where you think it is in your jaw, your shoulders, whatever, but you'll find it in your legs and just everywhere, you know, just trying to fully relax Mm. how impossible that is and start really realizing how we just carry so much, you know? Yeah. So like our bodies are literally trying to grasp for certainty, (laughs) not just our minds. But our bodies physically are trying to grasp for some stability. I, I remember um, and when I, I went on a trip to Israel and we went to the Dead Sea, which is just, you know, this salty sea. It's, it's the lowest point on earth. And there's like no living things in that water because it's so salty. And you just like you said, you just float. But I remember how hard it was for me to just trust that or just to fall back in water and allow myself to relax my core was engaged. I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm doing everything physically to try and stay above the water without allowing myself to, to trust that the water does it by itself, you know, which is such a beautiful metaphor for life as you just described it, man. Like the, you know, God's already doing it, whatever that it is. Mm-hmm. And we in life are just, just flailing our arms and our legs and and doing everything we can to try to stay afloat when like if we would really just relax yeah yeah i think you know and that's so important because anxiety is the norm Mm -hmm. if you look at all the different anxiety disorders that are possible um and then the dsm-5 and you look at the rates for each of those and i'm sure there's some overlap there but if you just take the rates for each of those and put them together it looks like about 65% of the general population has a diagnosable amount of anxiety that manifests in some way that we recognize clinically, you know, and there's other ways that we don't recognize clinically, like what we're just talking about, carrying it in the body and things like that. So um, I think, you know, everyone that's living and breathing, unless we're brain dead or have dementia or something is experiencing anxiety it's very much the norm yeah is that so are we discovering that it's always been the norm or is there something unique about this particular time in history yeah i'm not i'm i'm not sure but um one thing that that we do know that i think is a major contributor is the fact that we have four times more environmental stressors than our grandparents did. So screens and advertising and marketing and phones and televisions and laptops and just all these things that are keep it, it's almost like an ADHD simulator, you know, when you're bouncing from email to text to, you know, hopping on a zoom call and then, you know, just all the back and forth switching gears where there's not a like a constant focus um, yeah. for a significant amount of time on, on one task. Uh, it's like we're all living in an, in an ADD simulator. Wow. And so that's fragmenting as well, you know, where we, we don't sit down and lose ourselves into a book for an hour or, you know, spend less time outdoors. It's one thing that's, you know, there's very few pros that go along with, um, all the cons that related to COVID, but I saw the other day where, um, you know, the numbers of people going to state parks and national parks have just skyrocketed, you know, so people are getting back outdoors more. And I'm sure that will end as soon as COVID resolves in some way, but man, uh, what an opportunity to kind of reconnect, you know? Yeah. And, and so for some of us, COVID has pushed us further into the, you know, as you call it, the, the, the ADD simulator um, because our work is now on Zoom. Um, we still got to spend like, a little bit of time on social media arguing about Trump or whoever else, you know. Um, and, you know, then there's texting and, like you said, email. This, I mean, we're, we are now brought inside where we're not, we're not, talking to other people face to face as much, you know? Um, so do you think that given that as sort of a backdrop, and I know I'm asking you to, you know, project something as a, like a scientist, you know, if you want to put the scientist hat on, do you think that coming out of COVID that anxiety 
or, or even during COVID, is is our anxiety increasing? Will we will it you know, is that sort of set up for there to be even a greater spike of that as we come out of COVID, whenever that is? Yeah, I, th I think especially for kids, we're going to have a whole cohort of uh, somewhat traumatized kids, mm. you know, losing uh, milestones and markers and birthdays and gatherings and losing access to friend groups and uh, things that you just can't really fully access through a screen. Um, I mean, Thank God that kids can hang out with their friends virtually, but, you know, things like physical touch, you know, uh, going without that for a significant amount of time, just, you know, handshakes and hugs and stuff. I think really um, it's almost, um, you know, like a sensory deprivation to a degree mm. in some ways. Um, and that's before you even get into kids who were only eating at school are now at home 24 seven and kids that uh, whose time in school was time away from an abusive parent or a predator now those people have full access you know so yeah i think there's going to be a significant amount of um and there already is a significant amount of uh, trauma and uh uh, anxiety and then you know I literally have two clients that I've been working with that have literally uh, descended into sort of some level of psychotic of a psychotic break uh, because there's things like um, you know one guy's owned a business for years and it's it's, it's gone because of COVID mm -hmm. you know, a lot of small businesses are gone um, he has spent that time and energy that's on his hands and, and that anxiety going down all these rabbit holes with conspiracy theories and stuff. He's literally lost touch with reality, mm. you know, because, you know, you, you lose your livelihood, your stability, you lose everything. And then with all that time and energy on your hands, you, you spend it on a laptop exploring conspiracy theories to the point where the line between reality and, and, things that are not in reality is so blurred for him. He just, he's lost in that. Yeah, know? man. Wow. And I imagine a good deal of that is uh, this internal search. And I'm totally speculating right now. I'm guessing just running with a thought I had after what you just said. So everything I'm about to say could be total bullshit or it could be brilliant. Who knows? That's, that's actually how I feel every time I start talking. Um, <laughs> but like... This like this these conspiracy theories, this this QAnon, this um, dare I even say Fox News type of of environment that like for the person who feels like something's been taken from them, their business due to COVID or whatever, they find these voices and these stories that give them a sense of peace, albeit this this fantasy world where there's an enemy out there, and if we could just if we could just get rid of this party or this people or this way of thinking, then you get your business back. That's that makes so much sense to me when you describe, you know, and, and it's unfortunate, and, I, and I'm I'm sad for this this individual, but it makes total sense to me how this psychotic break would happen, based on not being able to have touch and be around a community of people that can bring balance to all of these wild ass conspiracies, mm -hmm. that it naturally would just break you. Yeah, yeah. And, and another thing that's scary is, I mean, this is someone who has been a very functional, pretty progressive person mm. for his entire life, you know, uh, well-educated. It's not like it's just someone who is running on a third grade education somewhere, just kind of, mm. you know, super Trumper or something, you know, so mm. um, it's, uh, it's sad. And there's a um, I think there's a lot of that going on to a lesser degree. That's an extreme case. But but like you said, I think when people start losing their sense of normalcy, they start looking for certainty and enemies. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know way more than I do. A lot of that demonization has been pointed at Black Lives Matter and uh, at, you know, kneeling athletes and, and the whole thing. Um, where, um, you know, cries for justice are seen as a threat, 
instead of just what they are, cries for justice. Yes, which so I want to get to that because that's where we that's where we met, you know, uh, around that sort of conversations of justice and 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 racial equality and you know resisting white supremacy. Um, you know, you're obviously a white cisgendered male uh, in the South. So, what has this journey for you been like, specifically speaking about being an advocate for racial justice? Yeah. I don't even know where to start with that. <laughs> um, so um, I have a sister that's five years younger, and uh, she had spinal meningitis when she was six months old, so she has special needs and a lot of limitations. And uh, she and I were the, the two white kids in our neighborhood. Uh, so we lived, we were the, the white family in a black neighborhood um, in rural Mississippi. And so all of my friends and playmates and classmates were black. I was I was sort of the minority, but I just didn't think of I you know I kind of wasn't conscious of all of that really in a lot of ways. But um, but growing up in that context just formed me and informed me. You know, it's made me who I, who I am. Um, and God, the surrogate mothers along the way uh, for me were always black women. You know, God kept blessing me through the guidance and love and compassion of mm-hmm. black women in positions of power, like teacher and professor and, you know, um, and, um, yeah, I've just I've been extremely blessed in this life to, to have an experience that I, I, I try to translate to, to other white people in some ways, but I think, you know, the society I grew up in, um, says all the right things, but it forbids um, a, a real depth of love and primary relationship between people of different races. It just does. On paper, it doesn't, but in lived experience and in reality, it does. And, you know, I, I was nurtured and raised up by people that I probably wasn't supposed to love and they weren't supposed to love me. But by the time I figured that out, I was inoculated. Mm. <laughs> You know, the forbidden thing had already happened at such a young age, you know, that, yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, literally my seventh grade, um, seventh and ninth grade science teacher, Miss Witherspoon, she, uh, she literally, because there was a lot of stunting and neglect. I mean, my parents were teens when they had me and just have their own addiction issues and stuff. She literally taught me how to hold a fork correctly. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And how to, you know, breathe through my nose and not through my mouth in public, you know, things like that, <laughs> which you're supposed to learn at home, you know? So there's a lot of things like that and that she taught me and said, you know, if you don't, if you don't do these things, you're smart, but if you don't listen to what I'm saying and follow my guidance, people are not going to know that you're smart. And if they don't know, you're going to forget. Hmm. And so she inoculated me there against a lot of things, you know, moving from that community in high school, you know, you, you leave that community and go into the larger town. And, uh, you know, I didn't have a context or a community there, you know, I, I didn't, I was in a black community, but I didn't really belong to it. And then when I moved into the larger community, I didn't know anyone there. So, you know, if the, it was a constant battle to hold on to a sense of self and a sense of esteem. And, and because of her, I was able to, you know, like I remember going to eat with a girlfriend for the first time at a white tablecloth restaurant. And I sort of knew to some degree how to navigate that because of Miss Witherspoon, you know, and I went back later and found her uh, just before she died. And um, we went to lunch a couple of times and uh, she uh, was telling me about how back during that time, our relationship was special for her too, because the older white people around her um, didn't treat her well. You know, she talked about living at that merger of um, um, sexism and racism where she was passed over for promotions, even though she was hands down the best teacher in that school system, um, not given the awards, even though she was the student's favorite and that sort of thing, you know? And um, the fact that she lifted me up with what little relative privilege she had just because she was in a, in a position, you know, within a system, she used what little power she had to lift up someone that looked like the people who were holding her down. Damn. And 
that that's a story that shouldn't keep happening. Uh, but it's a story that I'm I'm going to keep living by. I've, I've lived by ever since um, because I, I I think any work that I try to do is just um, keeping going what she planted in me. What a beautiful story, man! And so much in what you just said about Miss With- Miss Witherspoon to me is exactly what you said earlier about God being in all of it because mm-hmm. Dr. Um, I believe Dr. Dolores Williams in her, in her book, Sisters in the Wilderness, she talks a lot about the surrogacy of black women and how from, you know, the antebellum slavery days that the black woman was charged with taking care of little white boys and white girls. And, and that sort of role if we if we take seriously the notion that we carry trauma in our bodies, not just what we collect in our lifetime, but what we carry from our previous generations and our ancestors, then there's something perhaps to this Witherspoon taking care of you that comes from slavery. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and yet, like, she uses this nasty, dirty, broken thing to do some good in the world for the oppressor's offspring. Mm-hmm. Like that is absolutely incredible. And one of the many reasons why I, every time we, I hear, especially about an older black woman, the first word that comes to mind is divine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's been my experience. My, my, uh, my mother figure now one of my best friends is a former professor, black woman. My best friend is a black black woman. Um, and um, yeah, you know, God's just blessed me through these relationships in so many ways, but I, I, I also, you know, seen the story with Miss Witherspoon as a story that needs to stop being told um, because it needs to stop happening. Mm-hmm. You know, the, uh, the nanification or mammification or whatever of black women is, is, is still going on, you know? And I mean, you know, that I'm, it's not like I'm telling, telling anyone this, but, uh, but, but that, that giving more than you receive Mm. and being seen as the provider, not the receiver Mm. of love, care and attention and concern and opportunity is, um, it's it's so romanticized at yeah. times, you know, yeah. the benevolent grandmother or the, I mean, I'm, I'm telling a story along those lines. I think my responsibility in my story is to keep giving um, what she gave me. Yeah. You know, to pass it on. Like, um, I know how to use my privilege because she had a tiny, tiny bit and used the hell out of it to lift me up. Yes. I have a ton of privilege that I can use to, so that's why, you know, we've talked a little bit before about um, the re- the reparations education project yes. that I've been working on, and yeah, talk about that. the uh, the top scholarship is in her name. Oh man, yeah, and so that scholarship will be used to help um, a black woman get through college to become a therapist, um, and you know, just keep, keep that going. And, um, to me, that's what privilege is. You know, my best friend is, uh, Dr. Jandale Crutchfield and we've done a lot of, uh, racial healing work. We just co-authored a, a chapter in a book that came out last month, uh, called United We Stand. It's about doing faith-based, um, racial healing work, um, in, in communities in Mississippi. And, uh, and she did a TED talk or a TEDx talk on some of the work we we uh, did. But part of our shared work um, when we would present is I, I would I, I would present, she would present, and then we would present together at the end of our you know um, workshops. And in uh, her part that she did solo, she did a privilege exercise. And that's what she talks about in her TED talk. Mm. But at the end of the day, you know, when we would do these workshops, we would have the highest privilege group, and this would just be doing raw math, you know, a survey, mm-hmm. and people didn't know what they were doing, so it kind of tricked them into an uncomfortable situation, but by the time we were done, the highest le- level of privilege would be all the white people in the room, and the lowest level would be all the black people in the room, 
And the group in the middle were people who were sort of on somewhat of an even socioeconomic field. So in a lot of school teachers were in the middle group, mm. you know, uh, and uh, it was really interesting to see, see those dynamics and then say, okay, extreme group A and extreme group B, get together and talk about this. Mm. You know, and at the end of the day, there's just all this shame and tension and everything. And, and then Jandell would just say, look, privilege is about realizing that you have it. And then just reach down when you're on the ladder, reach down to the person underneath you and pull them up. And you just keep doing it. It's the opposite of the whole crabs in the, in the bucket analogy where everybody's pulling each other back down, trying to be the one to, you know, kind of max out. And so... Yeah. Yeah, and for me, I think at the end of the day, the and it's part of this sort of global view of God is that, you know, the quickest way to tell this in a story is I went to Ecuador on a mission trip uh, several years ago, and the kids all took care of one another, and the older siblings took care of the little ones, and when one got some food or a toy or a game or something, they the first thing they did was go share it, you know. It was not that kind of hoarding, individualistic thing that we have here. And what I realized was that their locus of identity and their locus of concern was the group, not self. Mm. And so American Christianity is going to places like Ecuador and feeling like maybe they're there to give. But I think we can really learn a lot from other cultures about, you know, because by the time you take white capitalist, Republican, conservative, Southern, blah, 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 Christian, man, there's so many uh, disclaimers there. What's left by the time you get to Christian, you know, all these qualifiers. So what if, what if just, you know, um, white Christians um, saw not just, themselves, their nuclear unit, or their neighborhood, or their extended family as God's people, or family, or, or just identity, but but everything, everyone, you know? So then yeah. the suffering you see across on the other side of the tracks, uh, you take responsibility for that. It's not yeah. their suffering, it's, and then at some point, once you get past you know, like the thing that I teach my, my son is that if we're family, we, we take not in a codependent way responsibility, but we take ownership of one another's suffering. Yes. In some way. And yes. if, if we, to, unless, if we're not doing that across racial lines, our view of God is just way too small. Way too small. Right. Yeah. And yeah, I don't. I don't remember who wrote the book, but it's it's called um, the Liberation of Christmas, and it was where I was first introduced to this 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 word Anawim, or the idea of the Anawim, which is the the divinity of of the poor, right? Is this concept that like that you if you just watched people and were around people who don't have all of the the trappings of of wealth and affluence that we see in the United States, that there's something divine to the way they behave with one another, the way they take care of each other, the peace that they have, the joy that they have, that it's derived from something different than stuff. And I feel like the blessing that any um, person with privilege, any person from the dominant culture in the United States can have is a consistent proximity to people way down the social ladder that to see them as human and to watch them and to know their names and to spend time with them. And that's what you got from Miss Witherspoon and, and, and the folks you lived around and, and you know, that the community you grew up in. And that's, that's a huge blessing that I think we don't, that our, our society and capitalism teaches us to run away from and what we're actually running away from is the divine nature of God in the, I don't need all the stuff to feel a sense of joy, peace, belonging, and health and wholeness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 There's, there's way more of a sense of joy in the midst of suffering in the community I grew up in than in the community I'm in now. 
<laughs> and there's uh, there's a lot of a uh, lot of a desire to return to that and figure out what that might look like for our family. You know, yeah, dude, Tony, thanks so much for for coming on the podcast. It's been such a, a great conversation for me. I mean, you know, I mean, but you're a therapist, so I got to sit and talk to you for free. You know, so, <laughs> so dude, tell us before you before before we go, tell us a, a little bit about the project you briefly mentioned. Um, you know, the reparations project that you are, are working on, what you're hoping to accomplish in, 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 in any way, if any, that people can help. Yeah. So uh, this is something that was put on my heart a couple of years ago, and uh, and I'm just kind of doing the legwork. I met with uh, the board of the Center for Contemplative Justice, which is run by Becca Stevens from Thistle Farms, and, uh, and uh, they've given me some guidance and support. Um, in conversation with Tennessee State University right now to start with, it's a, it's a HBCU, and to start there supporting their students. And uh, hopefully if this thing grows and gets off the ground, we can support other HBCUs. But basically to help um, uh, students of color get a master's degree in the counseling professions uh, at HBCUs. Um, awesome. And, uh, and then also my wife and I, and we're hoping to develop a team of people who uh, we're licensed to provide the clinical supervision you need to go into private practice eventually. And so I would love to help foster, um, you know, any, anyone who has a dream of starting a private practice in, in communities of color. I mean, that's, that's kind of the goal, that's you know? Amazing. Yeah. Cause yeah. people need therapists that look like them and know their experience. Yes. And there's, there's a real deficit there. Yes. And so the, the goal is to, to try to bridge that gap. And, uh, you know, got several um, well-known people willing to come on board and support it and have scholarships in their name. And um, looks like we'll, we'll, we'll be lifting off within two or three months and get this thing rolling so that hopefully by next fall we can have our first scholarships go out. That's awesome, Tony. Well, Tony, I'll make sure that uh, in the in the uh, show notes of this episode that there's links to your social media, links to the Voices of Wisdom podcast, which you know is an amazing podcast for those of you that want another one to listen to. Um, and uh, man, thanks, thanks again, thanks so much for, for coming absolutely. On the Thank you. Enjoyed it. Well, folks, thanks so much for listening. Thank you to all of you who are, especially those of you that are a part of Patreon community. I so appreciate your support of this work that we're doing. Thank you to all of you who have rated and reviewed the podcast. Um, if you haven't rated or reviewed the podcast, I'm not thanking you yet because you've not done it yet. <laughs> I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And thanks to our guest, Tony Caldwell, who's amazing. And thank you all for helping us to contend for a better world one conversation at a time.